Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I felt as if this is it. This is not a way I want to go. Um, and I closed my eyes. I remember my tears were frozen immediately because it was incredibly cold. And, and then I remember hearing this voice inside my mind. And the voice basically said, why are you here? Why are you here? And it kept coming. I'd never heard this voice before deep inside me and I didn't have an answer. Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast. I'm John Horsfall and on this weekly show we talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have done remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders and many more. But what is left for the adventurers and explorers in the 21st century? Well, my next guest is a mountaineer and author who has completed the seven summits. He has recently come out with a book called Naked at the Knife's Edge, his harrowing story about climbing Mount Everest. And today on the podcast, I am delighted to introduce Vivian James Rigney to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm delighted to have you on to sort of talk about what one your experience, which you did quite a number of years ago uh, on Everest, and we'll get into that shortly. But at the beginning of all these podcasts, I always like to start at the beginning and how you sort of got into this sort of adventurous life, how your climbing sort of took off. My first memory about getting interested in the world was sitting in front of the TV, I think about four years of age, watching um, David Attenborough um, and just watching programs about the world and traveling. Here was this guy who was traveling around the world, you know, sitting with gorillas one minute and then he was, you know, in Australia the next and, and the whole world that went around that. And, and I remember just being wildly interested in nature, animals, just the environment and the outdoors. And that was uh, at, a, at a very, very young age. And uh, it just expanded from there. And Ireland, originally from Dublin, Ireland, as you probably pick up from the accent, uh, it's an island off the west coast of Europe. And it is, uh, everyone looks kind of to the rest of the world. So everyone's looking to travel, people have family all over the world. So there's this innate interest in what's going on elsewhere. Um, and I guess that, that, that also uh, contributed. Uh, nice, because your what is fascinating is you completed the seven summits, which is a very rare thing. I, I mean, we've had a few people on from Geordie Stewart to Lucy Rivers Buckley on the podcast who have both done it. And it's probably on the podcast, the listeners think this is sort of a very normal thing. But actually, the preparation, the detail that goes into it and the experience you have to have to complete this undertaking is absolutely huge. Um, where did the idea first stem from? So I did Kilimanjaro first. Uh, I was 26. And um, when I was in Kilimanjaro, I heard people talk about the seven summits. And Kilimanjaro was just amazing. For the first time ever, I experienced altitude. Because Kilimanjaro, you're climbing a, you know, a massive volcano. So there's nothing technical about it. 
until you get to 4,000 meters and then you realize, why, are my, why is my brain, why my brain, my brain and my lungs are not connecting. My brain and my body is not connecting. I, my brain is saying, just walk, you're strong. And your body's saying, I can't walk. I don't have oxygen. So just going through that whole feeling and hearing about the seven summits and the different continents and this wild adventure that, that existed out there. Um, and, uh, and the next mountain I did, I went to business school. The next mountain I did was, uh, was um, Mont Blanc in Europe. I'm at the summit of Mont Blanc. We're all hu hugging each other. And I said to the guide, fantastic. Uh, we're at the highest mountain in Europe. And this French guy looked around and said to me, uh, he had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He's a character. He said, uh, no, technically it is not. It is in Russia. And I said, what? <laughs> so at the top of Mont Blanc, after coming up through the couloir and everything, I was thinking, uh, course correction, this is not the highest in Europe. So I came down the mountain humbled and uh, just started to really do research on the seven summits. Before then, it was just, you know, I'll just do one at a time. And I didn't take it that seriously. And of course, you just start. Um, I was working and I was studying and I was doing that. So I, I couldn't do one every year, but I could do one every couple of years. And I started to really focus on it and do one at a time. And uh, so guess what? I did Elbrus next in Russia. Um, and then after that, I came to uh, South America to do Aconcagua. And that was um, a spectacular failure. So it was three weeks on the mountain. We got up to high camp. We had the summit in sight and there was this massive windstorm. A few of our tents were destroyed. We lost some food. And the guide made a decision. Uh, we're going down the mountain. And it was incredibly, um, yeah, disappointing. Three weeks of effort flying halfway across the world. And that was a massive learning. And it was, there was a, a humidity that went with that also. Things you can control and things you can't control. And thereafter, I went to uh, Carson's Pyramid in Indonesia. That was about rock climbing. That was very difficult to get to. We were very lucky to get up. It's hard to get to that mountain. Kosciuszko was the typical seven summit people do. Um, but, but, you know, that's only 2,600 meters. Um, Carson's Pyramid is 5,000 meters and that's serious stuff. So, and then I ended up going to Antarctica, which was uh, mesmerizing, spectacular, it changed my life going down there. And then after we went to Denali, in uh, North America, which was very cold, very technical, almost like a mini Everest. Weather was bad. We were there three weeks, three and a half weeks, almost four weeks. Um, and then I always said I'd never do set. I'd never do Everest. That was for the big boys. That was for serious people. But like an itch you can't scratch. And, um, you know, people start saying to you, you know, when are you doing Everest? And Irish people say, well done. Congratulations. I heard you did Everest. <laughs> after a few pints and you know you're just going look is it me or is it the mountain and the question was it's probably me i've done some mountains i've you know i've learned a ton um and then i met somebody on a mountain who was organizing an exhibition to everest and i asked him you know a thousand questions and every answer was a good answer it was a humble answer it was a raw answer it was a real answer there was no messing around and I absorbed and I felt excitement coming within me with each answer I heard. And it was going to be a small team. It was going to be a dynamic team, small team, hand chosen. And um, not people with big egos, people who were put the effort in, who were humble, but who were very focused and who weren't too fond of themselves. Um, and it felt the values associated with putting that team together felt like a good fit for me. 
um, and I signed up and that was 18 months before I did it. I didn't look at a video for Everest. I didn't want to read naked. I didn't want to read uh, into thin air. I didn't want to know anything about it because I had a huge fear of heights. And that had always been the case. And I think we're born with that. I think it's, we can, we can, you know, tape it down and kind of getting over it on the mountain. Um, but it comes back. And uh, so, yeah, so that was it. That was 18 months. And then, uh, then I, I arrived in Nepal and uh, that was, that was the beginning. I, th- I think everyone has an innate fear of being scared of heights. The idea of, you know, looking down. I don't know anyone. We had uh, Tim Howe on last time and or the last episode. And yeah, he's a base jumper. And the idea is sort of so unnatural to look over a cliff and just throw yourself off or even look down. And I think for a lot of people, it's exactly the same. Was the idea within Everest was because you'd done seven summits. So surely in your mind, it was sort of brewing. You must have seen Everest and being like, this is the last one. Or six, six Everest was the the last one. I guess Everest has a reputation of just being extreme. And obviously the death rate is, is way higher than any of the others. And I was always aware of, and two months away and, I guess my own insecurities was I was I strong enough, you know, how would I how would I cope under that pressure? Um all all of those things and the heights thing, I mean the ladders, you look at those some of those aluminium ladders going across crevasses. I mean, it's ugly stuff. And uh and every year it's different. And uh, you know, it's this living glacier and there's a kumbu, the kumbu valley, it's it's spectacular. So that was definitely in my mind. And until I met this person and he he answered all my questions and I it was an aha moment and I said, it's me, it's not the mountain. And, uh, and then I arrived in Nepal. Uh, it's a funny thing, I ended up reading Into Thin Air uh, the week before I summited. I thought it was wise to read it in case there was any learning I could make up along the way of things not to do during our summer descent. So finally I read the book because it was on the table in the, in the, in the main tent. <laughs> so uh, it was too late at that point, of course. There was no going back, I, w- I was in. And in um, and what you sort of talk about uh, is the idea. Do you feel like a lot of times when people go, was there a lot of you're talking about picking your team and moving away from the sort of big egos that were sort of you know would do it for themselves? Were was that very important? Did you get sort of the idea, or not the idea, but the sort of concept of? Uh, picking your own team in order to make sure that your success rate was high and that everyone was going to look out for each other? Yeah, good question. I picked the company I was going to climb with. It was a company who I climbed with. I'd been with them in Denali. I'd been with them in Carson's Pyramid. I'd been with them in Antarctica. I knew the owner of the uh, co-founder of the company and I knew his value system really clearly. And, and when, I sat, when I sat with this, this, this guide, who he was hiring to run the, ex, the Everest expedition asked all these questions. I knew the founder had told me, this is the type of team we will, we will bring on board. Um, you know, we, we do not choose people with big egos. We choose people who are gonna be safe. People who are gonna work well together. People who were gonna work well together as guides. And it's gonna be small and it's gonna be personal. Uh, and we expect high standards and we will ensure this level of people coming on board. So we just felt they were doing all that homework for me. When I got to Kathmandu, I hadn't met 
many of the people before. Um, two of them I did, uh, but the other five I didn't. So that was, um, it was a bit of a leap of faith. But again, his value system and the experience I had before were really clear. And we were a small expedition. There were other expeditions with maybe 10, 20, 30 people, more like a machine and, you know, great logistics, great coordination, all that. But you can just imagine you're part of something bigger and there's just inherently more, more you know, more risk of people having different values and, and different ways of looking at what this represents. And, and you get under a pressure zone, stressful circumstances, those things tend to come out. So I was very happy to be with a small, tighter, tighter team. And they were all very experienced climbers. All, I think there were three, three out of the group, in addition to me, were this was their seventh summit. So you can see that, that they were, and then, yeah, the rest were, again, had done different climbs around the world. So all international, mostly American, American, Irish, Polish. Yeah, that was it. What do you think attracts people to Everest? What do you think really sort of gets them going back again and again? I guess it was partly the reason, the own reason, my own reason for doing the seven summits. I mean, on the one hand, it was seeing the world, and that's a very, uh, it's a very comfortable answer, isn't it? You go around and see the world and see beautiful places, but there's also an ambition in there to uh, achieve and to prove oneself. Um, and and some people go to the extent of talking about conquering Everest, which is you know pretty funny when you think of it how do you conquer how do you conquer anything right <laughs> conquering yourself is a big enough Everest I think in life but um so this so I think that ambition uh was something which is driving me under the surface and I think that impacted me on the mountain in significant ways so um it's covered in the book in terms of my personal journey uh which was quite profound and I came, I went up the mountain, one man, and I came down the mountain, a very different person. Um, so Everest was not just the culmination of the seventh of the seven summits. It was uh, almost like a, I don't know, not being cliche about it, but kind of a, a rebirth of me. Uh, in Ireland, we say copping onto yourself and uh, just being crystal clear about who I was and who I wasn't. And having those things being in 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 balance, probably for the first time in my life, that was that was the uh, the big takeaway for me. So it was some not like an epiphany or whatnot. It was when you say you came down. What who was the person that went up, and who was the person that came down? Yeah. So the person who went up was somebody who was super fit, very focused, um, trained well, um, conscientious. Um, and I was fit and I knew I was fit and I had a good head and I could just get my head down and work it. And on every day, you know, you know, on Everest, there's three rotations. Rotation one is from base. First of all, you got to get from the, from the airport to base camp. That's about 10 days to acclimatize. Then you go from base camp up to camp one to camp two, then all the way back to base camp for acclimatization and moving supplies. Then you go all the way camp one, camp two, camp three. Um, all the way back down to base camp, then down the valley to recoup and re- rebuild your energy because your your muscle mass has disappeared at that point. That's about five or six weeks in. 
And then the third rotation is the final one, come back to base camp. Everyone opens their laptops. They were looking at satellite weather because, you know, with Everest, there's probably a, a seven-day window of summiting. You know, it's really short. And everyone was trying to judge it. And then off we go up to the summit, the summit, our summit bid, as it were. And that's about six days up and down. And I'd be doing really well in the rotation, rotation one, rotation two. I was, I was quick. I was fit. I was in good shape. And then the third rotation, I um, did, did well up to camp three, camp four. Then I was having problems with oxygen. I wasn't sleeping that much, and I started to deteriorate. But the head was strong. The body was weak. The head was strong. But nobody else was feeling great as well. So it wasn't as if I was the only one feeling tired. Or, um, But at some point on the mountain, we came up to the south summit, so you're climbing, climbing up through the balcony, all through higher and higher and higher, go to the south summit. And in front of you, there's this vista of a Hillary step. And it is, it is profound fear when you look at that thing, because it is like climbing a wall and you see these people like ants climbing up. And before you get to Hillary step, there is a 50 meter knife edge, 2000 meters into Tibet, and about 1800 meters down to camp two, where I came from. So either way, it's, you know, express route down to, you know, your afterlife. Uh, so you have to, you look across this and I got to this point and the moment I saw this vista, um, I just, I just went into not panic, but I just looked and I said, um, I'm feeling bad. I'm not feeling good. I looked over our head guide was leaning against a rock. And he was vomiting. He started, he, he'd summited four times before. And he said, I feel terrible. I don't think I can do it this year. I looked over other guide and he was, his mouth was wide open. He was white. He was checking on me, Vivian, are you okay? And his eyes were popping out of his head. And I just looked and I just, the whole, um, I, I felt incredibly exposed. And, and we weren't even through the knife edge and up every step. We were at that last point. And uh, I went to a, a very dark place and uh, I just felt um, I've no energy, my oxygen. I, I, I was started to breathe, but there was no oxygen in my lungs. Um, and I thought came into my mind of uh, I'm going to be stuck here. And this is where I'll, this is where I'll, I'll rest. Uh, and it was kind of dark places. So I remember this, you know, dark cloud coming over my head. Uh, metaphorically, and this voice inside me, um, and I was I was emotional uh, because I felt I felt as if this is it, this is not a way I want to go. Um, and I closed my eyes. I remember my tears were frozen immediately because it was incredibly cold. And and then I remember hearing this voice inside my mind, and the voice basically said, "Why are you here? Why are you here?" And it kept coming. I'd never heard this voice before deep inside me. And I didn't have an answer. I don't know why I'm here. And the next thing the voice said was, why are you always trying to prove how good you are, how smart you are, how talented you are, how hard you work? And I didn't have an answer to those questions. So here I am, you know, almost at the top of Everest, having this discussion with myself it's not what you imagine you're going to be doing on Everest. Uh, on top of that, you're feeling that I'm going to lean against this rock and I'll be here for the next hundred years and people will be 
tapping my helmet as they passed me for future expeditions. Um, and it was just a, and I basically just wanted to get away from this place. So I closed, as I say, my eyes were closed and I just started to think of something else. And I started to, I had a thought in my mind. The moment I had that thought in my mind, everything went away. The volume went down and I started to breathe again. And then I got a tap on my shoulder from the Sherpa, my Sherpa. And I opened my eyes and I had to rub them because they were all frozen. And he pulled my face next to his and he said, we must go. We stay, we die, we must go. And I looked at him and I said, I can't do it. And he pulled me tighter. And I remember seeing this amazing, fantastic, weather-beaten, Sherpa face, strength, resolute strength in his eyes. And he said, follow me. And I surrendered. And I followed him. And he, he, he was taking one step at a time. He said, follow one step. And I followed one step, one step, one step. I came to halfway up Hillary Step. I have no recollection of the knife edge, no recollection of getting onto Hillary Step. And I remember coming to because his boots, his crampons were sliding down the rock. And, and I was trying to put my boot just exactly. I was so focused, John, on where his boots were. Nothing else mattered. I came to and I'm thinking, Christ, he's taken me up. I thought he was going to take me down. And at that point, I'm halfway up the step, and I just kept focusing on his boots, his boots. Got up to the top, swung around a rock where there's basically a whole view of air, and got to the summit, slowly got to the summit. And people were excited at the summit, and I got to the summit, and I said, why am I here? Now, I did say it's a nice view. I'm at the top of the world. It's not nice. There is nothing above me why am i here how about that um and that was my summit experience and i came down the mountain and that processed all the way down and had some interesting experiences down the mountain as well but yeah that's a long answer to your question about what happened with the summit and that experience, but it was extremely personal. And uh, the ego basically was of no use to me. The ego was the heaviest rock in my backpack. And until I let go of that ego, um, I couldn't move. And that was that release, um, that vulnerability, which I never felt in my entire being. Um, yeah, it was a powerful experience. It's still powerful just even talking about it today. And that's hard to believe many moons later. I think we've we've discussed at length on this podcast about how I mean it's that old cliche it's the journey not the destination and as you say most times when people get to where they're visualized whether it's you know finishing a massive race across the world or whether it's summiting Everest when they get it it's usually it's been the whole journey, you know, years of preparation and everything put into it. And it's somewhat of mostly an anticlimax, you know, and, you know, we've had people on left, right and center 
on this podcast and they all talk the same about the finishing line was just this feeling of not emptiness, but of something they weren't imagining, which is sort of what you had. Yeah. It's a connection with yourself. Um, and all the projection of I'm really fit, I'm really competitive, it's going to be a great feeling, and I grab a flag, and it's all nonsense. Um, it's a connection with yourself um, and that compassion for yourself and the humility in your naked, as it were. Um, and it's so unusual um, and it's so pure and so honest. And you just want to bottle it up and, and, and hold it. Uh, yeah, it's profound. I think people who go through, you know, near-death experiences, whether it be a car accident or something dramatic, you'll hear similar stories. Time slows down and they go inside and they go to a place. And it's, yeah, it's fascinating. It's a reset. Um, the idea is to kind of hang on to it though, right? Um, because the busyness is waiting. Um, the question is, how do you hang on to that? If that's the truth, then, you know, we'd rather have truth, thank you very much, as opposed to distraction and everything else. So the, kind of the sweet spot is to, is to hold on to that and, and nurture it because it needs nurturing. Um, nobody comes down and they're like just, you know, levitating, happy on air and, you know, everything is all bells and sandals. That's the real world doesn't work like that. So you have to work at it. Like climbing a mountain, you have to come down the mountain. You have to work at coming down the mountain. You have to work at incorporating that into oneself. You have to work at being compassionate with yourself and then being able to be compassionate with others. Um, there's no free pass on that. But if you feel it, then it exists. If it exists, it's you. If it's you, that's the truth. And that's you own the deeds of that. Nobody else owns those deeds. We tend to forget about this and society right now with so much distraction and social media and there's all this and that and the other and all these experiences. But are we really connecting with ourselves? Are we listening to ourselves? Um, maybe it's not as easy as, uh, you know, TikTok would make, make it believe. <laughs> right? <laughs> Fun experiences, did, but, you know, with depth, is there depth? Did you find coming down the mountain both physically and, let's say, mentally with yourself, as challenging as going up. In a sense, you were at the top and you had these thoughts. And, you know, most people think when you're at the top, you are there going, wow, I'm on top of the world. But that wasn't for you. And then when you were coming down the mountain, was the realization of what you had done and what your thoughts were and like processing those thoughts coming down the summit, was it, and putting them all together, was that just as a challenge as getting to the top and realizing? Yeah, good question. Good question. Yeah. Um, a couple of things I'll share. When I, so we, we reached the summit and then we came down to the South Cole, which is Camp 4, which is High Camp. Um, at that point, after being the summit, you basically have been, we've been climbing for 20 hours nonstop. So you see South Collis literally like, you know, Turks and Caicos. It is, it is you know, visualizing palm trees because it just feels safe compared to what we've, what we've been through. Um, and then we come spend one night there and then we come all the way down to Camp 2 and then finally back to Camp 1 after another night there. 
So I was processing. I got to, to South Call. I slept five hours solid, no dreaming. Um, my brain was so empty. And I think my unconscious mind was just, it, would, it had been exposed. Um, but I slept the best five hours of sleep I'd had in two months. So that was, that was a win. Then I got camp two and I wanted to call my family. And, you know, I, I grew up, uh, my father, you know, father was a, a climber, a mountaineer, um, you know, in the Alps uh, and then Kilimanjaro, Mont Blanc and so forth. So I guess it was something in the family, uh, but tough guy and uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't give us too many compliments, but he'd tell, his, he'd, tell, he'd tell our friends he was very proud of us, but he always expected a high bar from us. And it was always about, you know, you got to be, you got to work hard and you got to prove yourself and all that good stuff. So uh, I called my folks. I knew they were worrying about me, satellite phone, you know, the Irish ring. It's a bit like the Irish, Ireland used to be part of the UK. So we have the kind of the ring ring, that very distinct ringing tone. Um, and I'm there, there's a full moon, it's freezing cold and I'm on the satellite phone and then I hear this voice and yeah, his voice and it was a hello. Uh, and I, I felt the warmth of my dad's voice and I cried and I cried. Um, I just, it poured out of me for one minute. I don't think I'd ever done that in my life. Um, and after one minute, it stopped like a thunderstorm, but in that one minute, what I felt was a connection with my family, with, you know, you know, the sacrifices my parents had made, the fact that, you know, dad was tough on me, but, 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 but wanted the best for me. And I felt that, and it was incredibly powerful. And then after one minute, um, I call my breath and, and I, we had a conversation I said, how are you? And, and he told me, and he told me he was very proud of me. And, uh, it was a, it was a big deal. And again, it was interesting, isn't it? At the top, it was about me and accepting myself and, and, and why the heck am I having to prove, to prove, to prove. And I speak to my dad, you know, kind of halfway down and, it's about realizing what family is and what matters um, and what was always there. But sometimes we just focus on the tough stuff. We focus on, you know, this, that, and the other. But the core was there and the warmth and, and the love was there. And the one word I felt uh, when I spoke to him was love. And that was a powerful word. And, um, and then I got through the Kumbo Icefall and then I got to the bottom. And I'll tell you one more funny story because Irish people always tell you stories. Um, I, I spoke to a family member and they said, oh, I, I spoke to dad. And, you know, he told me and I told my dad it was really difficult. And I think they got to make it, you know, in that call with him. And they said to me, listen, I heard from dad that you said you almost didn't make it. You don't need to worry about that. You got to the highest point on earth. That's all you need to worry about. Don't you worry. You just tell people you've got to. It. And I felt immediate. Um, anger how about that i felt anger i felt frustration and i shot back and i said that's so wrong what you're saying to me what i went through and the toil and the questioning that is the story that is the story of everest and i'm going to tell it to everyone that listens and and the person you, the, the person that you know 
is a different person. Um, that is the story. And uh, it was funny, wasn't it? It was that, that for me, it was like the third piece that, that completed things. And uh, that was the piece that, that really resonated. So that, that kind of put a full stop on it. And it came, the mount, came down the mountain then. And, and that, that process for years, that kind of that, 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 you know, that idea of, of what is vulnerability and what is um, being free of our egos and our personas and all of that. It's a, it's a massive release. So, yeah, coming down was just as hard as going up. That's the, the net of all of that. I, th- I think that's so true. I, th- I, you know, before the pandemic was traveling all over the place. And actually the one thing the pandemic has probably given me is that sense of just how important family is. You sort of run a, you know, you were, I was traveling all over the world. And actually when I got back, I, I, there wasn't any part of me that felt, you know, oh, I need to get out. I need to go. It was actually just how important family is in, I don't know, in life and just that sort of circle around you. And also it, ju- it sort of just not makes a, um, I think it's also, but you need to sort of find that before you can actually really appreciate it in a sense. Yeah. And of course, you know, in the world we have, things can happen quickly and then somebody, somebody passes and then you don't get a chance to have that moment. Right. Mm. Which is sometimes we don't get to control those things. Right. But that healing of yourself is the minimum we must do. Right. To heal with others. It's ideal, but at least to heal with yourself. That's, uh, that's powerful. Mm. No, I agree. And then, so after you had sort of come back down from Everest, probably breathing a little bit better. Right. Uh, yeah. What was, and you sort of talked about legacy and the sort of importance of it. What would you say that the legacy that you took from Everest back to New York or to yeah. Dublin where you were living? Um, the idea of conquering, yeah. as you put it. There's an angle. I'll tell you a story as part of that answer. So we got back to Kathmandu. We had a nice dinner. And I had a flight four days out. And I said, I am not going to change my flight and go back to New York. I'm going to take a little bit of me time. I've been with the same people for <laughs> almost eight weeks. It was time. I just wanted to literally go to a place, you know, be a hermit for a while. So I, I found this whole country club in Kathmandu. The place was kind of run down, but it was like, I just wanted a hotel beside the jungle. I hadn't seen colors for two months. Think about that. I'd seen rock, ice, and sky. That's all I'd seen. So I just wanted something with vibrancy. So I went to this place, as I say, a little run down, but it was almost like colonial type, beautiful, beautiful old building. And uh, I got on the golf course there and I'm reflecting on Everest and I'm I hit my ball on the green and on the green, there's a few monkeys there. And one of the monkeys took my ball and I just started laughing and I just started laughing and I couldn't stop laughing. I was on my own and it was just the funniest thing ever, you know? And I just said, this is life. This is life. This is to be playful. This is to just be here. There's a monkey grabbing my golf ball. I just, 
seeing my soul on Everest. And I've been through, you know, this wild experience for two months. I'm traumatized from it. And there's a mon monkey running off into the, into the forest on my golf ball. It was just, you know, that idea of bringing that back to New York, the idea of being present, the idea of understanding what being playful is, of, of being curious. And New York is wonderful because it's like a melting pot, a bit like London. It's this massive melting pot of everybody. And there's an intensity about it, but there's an intensity about ev everything, but also people are from everywhere, but nobody really judges each other or cares about each other because everyone's in it together. And um, I remember walking the streets of Manhattan for a, couple, for a few weeks after I'd come back and I couldn't take this inner smile off my face. It's hard to, um, and people would respond to me. It's quite interesting. People pick up on our visual. They pick up on where we are with ourselves. And I was back to my job and I was kind of doing my thing. Um, and that's something I've been reflecting on probably for, for the last few years is that idea of just, you know, it all goes by so fast. And with COVID and the pandemic, pressure points, stress points, you know, but at the end of the day, we're, we are with ourselves and we create our happiness. Yes, we meet people around us to make us happy. Yes, we have experiences, but it comes from within. And uh, so the monkey in the golf ball is still in my head uh, many, many, many times. Uh, and I'm probably the monkey and uh, hopefully chasing a golf ball and, and not caring, not caring certainly as much. And I haven't done any tall mountains since the seven summits. So I took up scuba diving. I've been traveling extensively in 80 plus countries so far and before COVID, of course. And I'm um, just really enjoying uh, not having an agenda per se, like a wild agenda, an agenda of sorts, a framework, but nothing to must, 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 must tick boxes, none of that. So, with the sort of monkeys, I must have just been like after eight weeks of just complete seriousness to sort of almost have a, it was almost like a joke, really, in front of you that's sort of lighthearted after eight weeks of just intense intensity really right i think life put monkeys on that green to take my <laughs> golf ball and slap me across the face a few times and it, it was it immediately like bing bing the lights went on like in half a second like that's why i laughed for like at least four or five minutes it was it was wild and i, th I think what's just so interesting is you've got this book coming out naked at the knife's edge and you've had sort of 10 years to sort of really reflect on these stories, to really sort of delve into them deeply and to get a more, a better understanding. A lot of the time people sort of think, oh, you can just sort of reel it off. But actually a lot of these big trips and expeditions, they take time to really reflect and to really understand yourself within it. Is that what you found? Correct. If I wrote the book a year or two after, it would have been more descriptive. And then we did this, and then we did that, and then this happened. It would have been the usual. I mean, there. I mean, most people write books on Everest, right? It's significant uh, achievement. But the fact that I didn't do that, um, and at the time I was kicking myself, and I was, oh, you're such a procrastinator, you know, you know, you and your big talk. But I think. When COVID hit, everything just felt like I've got all the pieces of the jigsaw now, and it's way larger than that little myopic view that would have been the case, because it takes time to process these things. It takes time to process. It's, it's fascinating. Um, you don't get to control that. 
you can work on yourself. You can, you know, help yourself with different things, more self-awareness, all that good stuff. Uh, but time is a healer and, and with, with time and wisdom also comes with time. So it happened at the, it happened at the time of, of, of its choosing. And, um, and I went into the, onto the mountain again and writing the book. It was fascinating. Um, I was there and that's, um, that surprised me immensely, immensely. Well, Vivian, it's been such a pleasure sort of listening to the story. There's a part of this show where we ask the same five questions to each guest. Um, first question might be a little different because you've sort of taken up scuba diving rather than a mountaineering now. But what's the one um, gadget that you always take with you on your trips and expeditions or adventures? That's a good question. I don't have a gadget of choice, a gadget of my, probably my passport would be the one thing wherever I go. It's like in my backpack, I go to work, I have my passport in the backpack. It just, it just reminds me of this. I'm a citizen of travel and it's always there, even though I'm going to work, it's in my backpack and yeah, it never, it never leaves. It's strange, but yeah, that's, that's my gadget. It's less of a gadget, more of an anchor, right? Um, Okay. Uh, what about your favorite adventure or travel book? Uh, Shackleton South. Ernest okay. Shackleton's trip across Antarctica. I mean, it's a story beyond, beyond, uh, beyond the human um, capacity. It's exceptional. And it's as much a leadership story as anything else and how he motivates people to stay alive and to keep busy and organize themselves and the beautiful powers of delegation, motivation, delegation, and respect. And this is 110 years ago. It's, you know, way before it's time. And he died at 41 yeah. years old. So it's, it's kind of, you know, it's just amazing that he had all that, you know, in his twenties and thirties. Yeah. It's just, it's a phenomenal uh, story. I think, you know, even so he's, it's actually, it's funny because you always sort of talk about, as we've been sort of speaking, the story, the best stories are the ones which have that sort of challenge, that adversity, those struggles. A story of like, he went to Antarctica and crossed it with no problem. Most boring story in the world. But the fact that he had all those challenges is sort of, two, you know, 100 years later is still one of the great stories, the great, one of the great adventure stories of his time. Exactly. Um, why are adventures important to you? Um, curiosity, learning, uh, being present. So I think adventure is just open your mind to, um, like almost like an Aladdin's cave of, 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 yeah, of unfamiliar things and experiences and people and people's voices and languages and cultures and nature and color and, and, and all of it. It's all there. It's all there waiting. Uh, what about your favorite quote? Um, it's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. And that's by Edmund Hillary. And it's funny because he, you know, he was a very introverted guy and, you know, very matter of fact. But I think that quote, it's so deep and powerful. It's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. It says it all in a, such a perfectly concise way. 
Mm. No, very nice. And uh, people listening are always keen to travel and go on these big expeditions. Uh, what's the one thing you would recommend for people wanting to get started? Um, I think people have experienced the last lockdown and everything in the last two years. The world out there is exceptional. Um, and that with climate change and everything, quite a bit of it is changing. So I would invite people to experience as much as you can some of the things that are changing that mightn't be here in 20 years or 30 years, mountains or oceans or whatever it may be. Um, but there's a, lot, there's a lot of warmth out there, a lot of warmth with people, a lot of warmth with just being present with yourself and listening to yourself. So whatever, if that's going to another city, just going to another country, going to another continent, it's the same recipe. So. Very nice. Couldn't have said it any better. Um, and finally, what are you doing now and how can people follow you and also about your new book? Um, so the new book is going to be released, released on March the 8th. Uh, it's, going to be, um, it's going to be a hardback. Um, it's going to be on audible.com. So there'll be an audio version. So you'd hear my dulcet tones. Uh, reading through the experience um, and it'll be an ebook format of course as well uh, from my side i as i said i haven't done mountains i'm trying to get to some amazing national parks so in doing that and uh, doing a lot more skiing and uh, scuba diving i took that up uh, about six years ago and getting under the water is just amazing you're just it's a whole new part of the world that i didn't know much about before and it's amazing. And I'm in my bed every night. No more camping, no more, no more, uh, no more sleeping in a tent, which after Everest, I think I was cured of being cold in a tent at night. So I'm <laughs> happy to be in warmer climes, perhaps. Um, yeah. And what's the, what's the temperature in New York at the moment? Uh, so we were, we were minus, <laughs> we were minus uh, eight this morning Celsius. Fahrenheit, that's about 20 degrees. So yeah, 18 degrees. I was, I was 18F. I was chilly. Um, and then on just in, regarding the website, so it was vivianjamesrigney.com. Um, and um, yeah, that's, that's the book. And as a career, I do executive coaching. So I work with senior leaders and, and senior execs and I help them to summit their own Everest's and be more uh, emotionally intelligent along the way. So that would be the sweet spot of what I do in my day job. Uh, absolutely amazing. Well, Vivian, it's been such a pleasure listening to your stories and I cannot thank you enough for coming on today. Great, it's been a pleasure. And thanks for the great questions. And uh, it's great to, to share the journey with you, John. Thank you for listening. You can watch the podcast on YouTube now and don't forget to subscribe and review the podcast if you're listening on Apple. I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy adventures.